dismissed, but as you're grabbing a seat in an attitude of worship, maybe just keep the lights dim. Let's keep in this moment here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17 because I feel that for many of us, we can get lost in the details of a sermon series like this to where we're always going to the book of Matthew and we're forgetting that every passage is revealing to us something new and dynamic about Jesus. Well, in Matthew 17, we get a very strong, powerful glimpse of what Jesus is in nature. Jesus in nature is God. And Matthew has been building up to this the whole time. This is the part of the story where it climaxes with who Jesus is. And at the same point, as it's climaxing with who Jesus is, the evil of the hearts of the Jewish people is going to climax all the way to the crucifixion. So it's kind of like if you're watching a movie and, you know, at the beginning of the movie, say Avengers, they've taken down some bad guys individually. They're all out there doing their own thing. And then there's something that calls them together, joins them together, maybe a new threat. And then you see them all join together. You see all of their powers together and how powerful they are. And there's like something awesome that they do. But then after that, the enemy increases, and then there's this big battle at the end. How many know what I'm talking about when you watch movies? It's like you always know when it's about ready to get really bad because they just did something good. And then like the last half hour is like all of this bad stuff happening. And at the last minute, the heroes win. Okay, well, that kind of storytelling goes back 2,000 years, even to the gospel. He has been building up who Jesus is, and at this point, you're supposed to be like, Jesus is unstoppable. He is walking on water. He is healing everybody. He is rebuking and checking the Jewish leaders like it's nothing. Like at this moment, you're expecting the movie to be over. It's Jesus is God among men. He's come down to help us. He's done his job. All right, goodbye, Jesus. But the exact opposite happens. Once we see the transformation, and now we know who Jesus is, the Bible says the Jewish people are like relentless to try to kill him until they finally do. And we know the end of the story. They crucify him. And at the crucifixion, come on, everybody think about your Avengers movies. Think about all the different movies that you've watched. What are you doing at the crucifixion? You're weeping. You're sad. The hero is lost. Game over. The devil's won. And then what happens at the resurrection? Boom, there he comes. And so literally, you have to understand this now. It's not we're copying off of them. All of those movies are copying off of us. Because <laughs> that was the way the gospel was told. To get us to kind of go on that roller coaster of emotion. To understand how powerful he is. So let's go here to Jesus' transfiguration. It is in the Greek, Jesus' metamorphosis. That's what it means. Metamorpho in the Greek, transfigure is the same word. And we think about this, a caterpillar going to a butterfly. That's like an example we could all point to as a metamorphosis. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, and his face shined like sun. The sun is today's message. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and 
led them up on a high mountain by themselves. First thing that we know is that Jesus has favorites. Jesus does not pick favorites based on your age, based on your social, economic place, class, not based on your culture or race. Jesus has favorites based on obedience and those who get it. These three guys were getting it, and he was taking the head of the class with him. I want to ask you, is there anybody here that wants to be head of the class? Now, there's a part where they're going to get rebuked because they start wanting to jockey for the position of, of being on the right and the left and the kingdom to come. They, they start to let this go to their head. But there is truly authority and rank in the Bible. So don't get it twisted. Y'all don't know as much as everybody else or as, as, uh, as, as much as everybody else knows. You have to get it by the way they got it. So if you want to know how much I know, then study how much I know because I can know more than you. I can do more for Jesus than you. And you ought to want to do a lot for Jesus as well. So look at your neighbor and say, I'm going to put some points on the board. Amen. Everybody just isn't Michael Jordan because we came to church. Everybody's not going to be rewarded the same. So just don't think to yourself, well, we're all just the same. We're all Christians. We're all equally children of God. That's right. But today in my house, only the children who do the chores, who do the stuff, they're getting the ice cream today. Are you guys listening? And so there's a reason why all 12 weren't there. There were three that were there, and those were the head of the class, Peter, James, and John. Okay. He says he takes them up on a high mountain. Now, the moment you hear this, if you are a reader of Matthew's gospel, you are hearing everything to do with Moses on the mountain. Jewish connotations are just flooding to your mind. Remember, Matthew was written predominantly to Jewish people. That's why he takes so much time to tell the genealogy of Jesus. He goes through the teachings of Jesus in relation to the law. We call that the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, You have heard thou shalt not murder. Because that's a Jewish concept, right? And now he says, I tell you, if you're angry and you're hateful, that's the sin of murder. Okay, so the moment you hear this, you're like, Oh, they went to a high mountain. Who else in the Bible, very significant, goes to a high mountain? Moses. Moses had prophesied that a prophet would come after him that would be like him. Muslims try to point this out and say, we believe that Muhammad is that prophet. And they'll try to find these similarities, like Moses went to war and married, had multiple wives. Muhammad went to war and had multiple wives. So here you go. Uh, Moses gave a law code in the Old Testament, and then now Muhammad gave the Sharia law code that the, the world is supposed to live by. And they make these kind of what we would call cheap surface level comparisons to try to say Muhammad is that prophet. They fail in every significant way. Here's the, here's, here's the reason. When Moses said, one prophet will come up after me, he said, out of your brethren. Number one, you have to be a Jew to be a prophet like Moses. Okay, so when Moses said, another prophet's going to come after me, out of your brethren. Er, Muhammad's not even qualified. Muhammad is not even qualified. Number two, it doesn't say that he would have many wives, fight wars, and give a law code. That is not going to be the similarity. What made Moses a unique prophet is that Moses would talk to God face to face. They were all scared that God wouldn't come down and talk anymore to them and that they would lose that connection that they had with Moses because remember, the Israelites were all invited to the mountain to see and talk to God face to face too, but they got scared and they said, no Moses, you just go for us. You be our representative. And so then the Bible says at the end of Moses' life, 
that from that point on, no one talked to God face to face like that. Not even moving forward from there. Joshua didn't talk to God like that. Um, uh, David didn't even talk to God like that. Moses would literally go up on a mountain and talk to God where they could see God's feet and the mountain would be on fire and the glory cloud would be there. They would only see his feet and run away. Je uh, Jesus, I believe, was there, the pre-incarnate Jesus, and Moses is looking at him face to face. Then he would come into the temple and do that same thing. Not just his glory, don't get me wrong, they had the glory following them, but face to face, in the glory, Moses would meet with God. Did Muhammad meet with God face to face? No. He said, only an angel came to visit him. And when you study out the attributes of that angel, it sounds a lot like the devil who can appear as an angel of light. Because the angel denies the deity of Jesus. The angel denies the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The angel denies salvation by faith through Jesus. The angel sounds just like the devil to me. And if you study out his life, he was demon-possessed. The reason why I point this out here is because you cannot get more clear than this. This is the fulfillment that Jesus has a role as a prophet. He has a role as a king, and he has a role as a priest. He is going to fulfill all the three major roles in the Bible. And right here, he's going to show, I am a prophet like Moses, but even greater than Moses. Are you all ready for this? Goes up on a high mountain. There he was transfigured before them. See, Moses' face would get so full of the glory of God, you couldn't even look at it. He would have to cover it with a veil. But Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And at that moment, now watch this here. At that moment, just there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. They start talking with Jesus. So Moses is like, this is the man. I got to come down and be with this one. And everybody get this. Everybody get this. Who was Moses meeting with back in the day? He was meeting with Jesus. So he's like, oh, Jesus, I used to meet with you from you coming from heaven to earth. Now you on earth, I'm coming from heaven to earth to meet with you. Moses symbolizing the role of the law. Elijah, in their heart, was the greatest of the prophets. Elijah representing the prophets. They saw the whole Old Testament broken down into the law, into the prophets. And you see that continually brought up as the way they talk about the Bible. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. And we know Elijah was taken to heaven in a, in a fiery chariot. And so they are there talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. How many know it's good to be where Jesus is? Peter just said the obvious, but it's good that he said it. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So, you know, he's got a good idea. Let's all camp out here tonight in the glory of God. Once again, thinking about how Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. And only Joshua and a few others came up there with him. And so Peter's kind of like his Joshua. Peter is like his assistant thinking, we should do what Moses did when he was meeting with God. We should stay up here for like 40 days. Let's get the tents ready. Let's get ready to live up here. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, the father just interrupted Peter, said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Now we see that Moses and Elijah are not just coming there to hang out with a fellow prophet. They are coming there to worship the Son of God who has come as a man. They are now a part of the worship of the Son. The Son is not a good man just like Moses. He is not a prophet just like Elijah. He is the pre-existing person of the Trinity that they had been talking to the whole time. Isn't this amazing? And so the Father clarifies once and for all who Jesus is. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came to them and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, do not tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So let's tie this together, and then I want to make a moment of prayer for us, because I just feel so powerful today. At this vision that they see and all that they experience, they're ready to run down the mountain and tell the whole world. Just like Moses would tell of his visions and experience with God and tell the Israelites. They're thinking that's what it's time to do. But yet Jesus says, that's not my role. And here we get the insight into why Jesus is veiled, why Jesus is not walking around like a glow stick all the time. Jesus is coming to die for sins. And that's what the Jewish people of that day missed, and that's what all people who are not Christians miss. Because they think Jesus owes it to them like to give them a light show. You know, like, Jesus, prove your God, show us your God, you know, keep on the lights, Jesus, walk down the mountain, show all the Jewish people your God, show them Elijah, you know, call back down Elijah and have them talk to him, you know, to the, to the doubters. We call this the messianic secret. And you have to get this here. You have to get this. This is so important. This is why I want to go back into prayer, and then we'll finish off the rest of this if we have time. Jesus is not looking to put on a show and be your next Chris Angel or magician. He is looking for intimacy. He is looking for true relationship to reveal himself. So think of like in, in marriage relationships. If you want intimacy with your spouse, as my wife says, it doesn't start in the bedroom, it starts in the kitchen. So you don't just hop into the bed all tired from the day and expect to get you some, if I could say it like that, and expect that to be right. Now, there may be times you do that, whatever, but if you want a true loving relationship with your spouse, you have to throughout the day show them how much you appreciate them, how much you love them, because you're not there to be in their life just to get something that you want. And what a lot of people do is they make Christianity about what they get out of it what they get out of it. And so in their mind, they're owed Jesus' magic show. They're owed this. But Jesus does the exact opposite. Number one, he doesn't take everybody with him. And then number two, 
the few that come with him, he says, don't tell anybody. Why? Because he still wanted to see will the rest of them follow him for who he is or what he does. See, do you want Jesus' face or do you just want his hand? Do you want his blessings or do you want his heart? And we as creatures can become so consumed with our own needs that we get distracted by the very purpose we were created. The very purpose we were created for wasn't for us to have everything our hearts could ever desire. If you think about it, as awesome as the garden is, it really isn't what you would think paradise should be. Most of you would think, well, paradise, I have my favorite car there. I got a Lambo in heaven, man, right? So paradise, I'm going to have a car. I'm going to go fishing. Uh, you know, I've got to have all my friends there. You know, heaven, for most people, is an idolatrous vision of what their carnal desires want. That's why when you look to other pagan religions, since I was talking about Islam, you listen to what their paradise is like, having sex with multiple women, all this. It's really just a fantasy of what you would want on earth. But when we were created, we weren't created with fast cars. and We weren't created with technology. We weren't created uh, playing basketball, slam dunking all the time. We weren't created for that. If you look at it, come on, I want to be real honest with you here. If you look at it, it's almost like we were created for what they would call like an aquarium, but with earth, what do they call that? Tetrarium? Terrarium, thank you. It's almost like the earth is the terrarium of God, and we're his pets. But he elevates us beyond being a pet to his children. Think about it. The sheep get to go in the house. The sheep go in the house. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want all of these blessings. And then at the end it says, I will dwell in the barn, in, in the fields. No, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. And so what is the idea that we're supposed to get from the beginning of Genesis all the way until this moment, come on, catch this, is that Jesus wants your heart, Woo, get this, to be his home. The earth was just a place for you to have a body and a place to dwell. But that really wasn't supposed to be your home, nor was that his home. What he wanted the whole time was the human heart to be his home. He wanted your heart. He didn't want your sports abilities. He didn't want your fishing abilities. He didn't want your making money ability. Though you can see he made us on an earth to have dominion and do all of those things, but the first and most important thing we were created for was to have our heart be his home. And now just tie it together with Moses here and with Jesus. Jesus was coming down meeting with Moses and then going back up to heaven, and then Moses would come with his face glowing and telling all the stories, and even then the people of God were so disobedient that they ended up being cursed for 40 years in the desert, all of them dying, and their children being only ones going to the promised land because they blew it. It goes from that to now Jesus is on earth with us, and then he says, this is what it's going to take for me to make your heart, my home again. I am going to suffer 
at your own hands. The hands that Jesus created out of dirt are going to be the same hands that put him on a cross. The same earth that he created is going to be from the same earth they take a tree and nail him to the cross. It's going to be the same earth that he created that they get the metal to make spikes to set him on that cross. His own creation, his own people are going to kill him. And that's why he came, to die. But why is he doing that? So that he might be with his people again. So when we look at the scriptures, we're looking at a story of restoration. And at this point, everyone else that's not in the in-group, everyone else that's not close to Jesus, it's going right over their head. Even to the point when he's on the cross, what do they put above his head in three different languages? King of the Jews. You see, they don't get it. The whole time they're thinking, a king would conquer, a king would kill, a king would force his will upon us. How can this suffering, lowly servant be a king? If you're a king, come down. If you're a king, destroy the earth. If you're a king, it's almost like the Jews, because you sometimes wonder, what were they thinking in crucifying him? And a lot of theologians go back and forth that some of them might have been doing it to manipulate the Messiah, to force him to fight and to go to war. That's what we think Judas might have been doing. That's why he shows so much regret at the end, because they were thinking, okay, he's a miracle worker. We know that. I mean, it's not like they're stupid. They're actually seeing miracles, especially like Judas. So why would they betray him? Why would they want to crucify him? Because they're setting him up. Keep punching him. Keep slapping him. Keep whipping him. Eventually he's going to destroy the Roman Empire and he's going to come out and show us how awesome he is. And yet, he does the exact opposite. He dies the death of a poor, wretched sinner. The kind that everyone, the Bible says, would shake their head at, point to and say, never be like him to their kids. He dies like that, abandoned by his followers. He dies in misery and pain. And while he's there, he goes, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They didn't understand that the king had come down to die. And so what I believe Jesus is doing here in this moment of the transfiguration is he's showing the disciples the king and the suffering servant are not two different persons. They're just two different acts of the great play of God. Because if he would have came down at that time as king, not only would we all perish, because none of us or most of us here are not Jews, not only would we perish, all of that world would have perished and all of the world after them, even until our time. And so because God so loved the world, because he loved even the Roman soldier crucifying him, he died so that they might live, that they may not perish, that if they would just believe. And so what is the belief of John 3.16? What are we believing? We're believing the king became a suffering servant. We're believing that the Son of God died, rose again, so that we might live. Now I want to show you how it applies to you. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. 
How many know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 by heart? Come on. Therefore, if anyone, come on, he's a new creation. Gone. The new is here. But do you understand why that works the way it does? Look at verse 16. Isn't it always awesome when you go back to popular verses and check out their context? You see things maybe you didn't see before. Watch this. Matter of fact, let me go up. Let me go up a little bit because I think you guys might be encouraged by this. Go to verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Because the death he died there was for our sins so that we might not live to them anymore. We'd count as dead. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now watch verse 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Who's the we there? It's the universal we of humanity. We all missed it. In other words, if we would have been there 2,000 years ago, in our hearts, we would have missed him as well. We would have been hard to please. We would have thought he owed us more explanations. We would have thought dying on the cross was stupid. We would have been called stupid or or Satan like Peter. You know, we would have argued with his ways. We would have simply saw him as just attempting to do something great. But, you know, if he just had our help, he could really do something great. And Paul says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now watch. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has what? Has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So let's go back to that passage and let's pray a little bit. Do you need to change the way you see Jesus? Because some of you, even after reading scriptures like this, you still see Jesus as your genie. Like genie... Jesus needs to do X, Y, and Z for you so that you can keep believing in him because if you you don't believe in him, Genie Jesus is going to be sad today. Genie Jesus is insecure about himself, and he needs more of us humans to believe in him. Some of you think of God that way. So if Genie Jesus doesn't, doesn't pop off this miracle right now, then you know what? You're going to, you're going to hold back your love for him. And you're going to make him pay emotionally. You're going to give Jesus the cold shoulder because Jesus isn't doing it your way. If that's you today, I want to encourage you as we begin to pray to stop seeing Jesus from your point of view. Stop seeing Jesus as the one that's here to make your life easier. Jesus is here to make sure that you have no problems in life. Jesus is here to make sure you never suffer. That's all he's here to do is just to make you feel better. I want us to pray and get over that because he's not here for that. As a matter of fact, after this great revelation of who he is, you would think the disciples would never doubt him again. No, they doubt him again. Where? At the cross. Peter betrays him three times. Why? Because genie Jesus wasn't doing what Peter wanted him to do. 
And it wasn't until after the resurrection, which is actually talked about right here in Matthew, that even, let's just go there, go to Matthew chapter 28, that they begin to get over their doubts. I mean, you've heard about doubting Thomas. He said, I have to touch him to believe. Look at this, Matthew chapter 28, at the end of the book of Matthew, because he's building us to a point, isn't he? He's telling a story. Look at Matthew chapter 28 and just start in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some what? Some doubted. Even after the resurrection, some are still doubting. We know doubting Thomas is included in there. We know Peter was a little bit ornery. He didn't want to believe the women at first. He had to run down there with John to see if the story was true. We begin to understand that believing in Jesus as who he is is a lot harder than believing in Jesus as the way we want him to be. Let me say it again. A lot of you believe in a Jesus that doesn't exist, and that's easy because Jesus is made in your image. But it's hard for you to believe in the Jesus that does exist, the real Jesus, because that Jesus doesn't do things the way you think he should. He doesn't show up the way you think he should, on the timeline you think he should. And that Jesus can become annoying to you because that Jesus lets us suffer. Go back to the passage, please. As we get ready to pray this out, because I don't want anybody to miss it today, including me, the question is, how do you see Jesus? Now, if you're saying to yourself, well, isn't Jesus supposed to change us? And aren't we supposed to pray and ask Jesus to do miracles? I mean, if it's all just about suffering, then why do I ask God to help me in my suffering? Oh, here, here's the deal. Get it. Get it. God's goodness is why we pray. God's goodness is why we ask for help. Jesus is showing us how good God is that he would even come in the flesh to be with us. But don't get God's goodness, God's love, God's compassion twisted with this world being the way you want it to be. Because in God's goodness, get this, the disciples are going to die martyrs' death. That's why we talk about the difference between other religions and Christianity. It's based on historical fact, not just make-believe. So my, my son, he was at the park the other day, and we have a lot of Hindu neighbors. And there at the park, he talked to a young boy, and he said, do you worship Jesus? And the boy said, no, I don't worship Jesus. And then he said, what God do you worship? And he said to my little seven-year-old Lucas, he said, we worship a lot of gods. And then Lucas came running back from the, the park to tell my wife, Nancy, his mom, uh, what do I say to someone who worships many gods? Because he wasn't ready for that. He's either like listening to people who say they don't believe in Jesus, know God, or, or you know, other Christians who are maybe backslidden. He had never ran into somebody who said, well, we don't worship Jesus because over here we have all these other gods we worship. Why do all the pagan religions have these multiple gods, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's, uh, you know, forms of Buddhism or in, in the, uh, the time of the Roman Empire, the Roman gods. Why is it even like the Nords, you know, and all of these Viking gods? Why did pagans have so many gods? Because their one god was never enough. 
And they needed a God of thunder to help them in times of thunderstorms. They needed a God of rain to help them in times of rain. They needed a God of food during the time of the harvest. And, and their gods are always just a little bit bigger, just a little bit stronger than they are. Kind of like what we would call our superheroes. And so they need a bunch of them. What is Jesus saying right here? I'm the only one you need. What is the Father saying? This is the only one you need. Listen to him. And so when I talked to my son, I said, this is what you go back and tell him. All of your gods are make-believe. My Jesus is real. That's what you go back and tell him. You go back and tell them, there's no historical evidence for Ganesh, Krishna, for all of these other gods, for Zeus. There's no historical evidence. And yet Christianity is based in history. It's historical fact this man Jesus lived. It's historical fact he was crucified. It's historical fact that he has disciples, secular, Jew, even non-Christian historians. Go. We understand there was a man named Jesus. He claimed to be the son of God. He was worshipped. He was followed. He was crucified. And people believe they saw him after resur- at the resurrection. So now here's the problem with Our God is a make-believe God like your God. If they try to say that back, here's the problem. Why did people believe in a man of history we can point to, but say that man of history did things that they saw no one has ever done? No one ever saw Muhammad's Gabriel. No one ever saw his Gabriel. No one ever claimed to see his Gabriel. None of the Mormons ever claimed to see Joseph Smith's father, son, and the angel Moroni. None of them claimed. We saw it with him. This is the only religion based in historical fact with myth that blows your mind. And yet, it is the very confession. Oh, it wasn't just he went to a mountain and then it got overcast and came down and he was suntan and then he said he met with God and God said X, Y, and Z. No, no, no. We were on the mountain too. We saw him change. And then when they were brought before the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, what was the case against him? You're claiming in history to see the actual God of your religion. We don't like that. Caesar is the only representation of our God and we believe all the mythological stories just based on storytelling. No one has actually seen Caesar born of a goddess and all that. We just believe that based on our storytelling. But you're now saying that there's a God among men and he's greater than our Caesar. On some of their coins, they used to put Caesar is Lord, and you are saying Jesus is Lord. We have a problem with that. And they would die, these disciples, gruesome deaths because of their belief. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, if I can just see him like this, then I'll understand the problems I go through, and I won't suffer so much when I'm in my trials. I want to show you that's not the right way to think about it. Go with me to 2 Peter. Go with me to 2 Peter. Who was one of the people that was on that mountain? His name starts with a P. What was his name? Peter. Now look at what he wrote in 2 Peter about that visitation and how we are to be encouraged. Look at this. Look at verse 10. Oh, first, uh, excuse me, 2 Peter. 2 Peter. 
chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Look at what he wrote. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. You notice he's talking past tense. We're not telling you stories and myths when we talk about how he came in power. Keep reading here. It says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Let me just pause right here. I didn't even get a chance to show you the Trinity, did I? Father talking to the son who's the cloud of glory. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, cloud of glory. Who's the one talking? The Father. Who's the one in the cloud? The Son. When Moses would meet with the triune God, how would it be? Father in heaven speaking, Jesus face to face, cloud of glory. Here Peter mentions the same exact things. The Son, he's there. The Father, he's speaking. And the majestic glory, the Spirit is there. This is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, on the holy mountain. But hold on. I wasn't there, Peter. That's not fair. I can't have the same kind of faith like you did, Peter. And you know, and I'm going through hard times right now, Peter. I wish Jesus would just come down and glow a little bit for me and shoot some fire out of his mouth like Pokemon or something. Come on, uh, Peter. That's not fair. But look at what he says. We also have the prophetic message. The prophetic message is what the prophets wrote about. As something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place. What did they see Jesus shine like? The sun, light. Now what do we have? The prophecies. That's the same thing. The light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? What was God showing us through his son Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit? The prophets were true and the prophets were right. Go back to the book of Matthew. Sir, just hold your place in our notes. I'm gonna go through it quickly and then we're going to pray. What did the prophets say about Jesus just in the book of Matthew? In Matthew chapter 1, he will save his people from their sins. That's Zechariah 3, 4. Matthew 1, he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Isaiah 7, 14. He is said to be a ruler and the shepherd of God's people. That's Matthew 2, 6 from Micah the prophet, chapter 5, verse 2. John the Baptist then says, I am a voice calling out in the way of the, uh, in the wilderness, calling out, make straight the way of the Lord, because the Lord is coming down, y'all. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. We then see, and that was mentioned in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. And then in Matthew chapter 4, we see the prophecy that not only the Jews are going to get a taste of the glory of God, but Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. That's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. 
from Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. And the prophecies continue. What do we see, friends? We have the same witness that Peter said, I got to see face to face and see lived out. We now have the same witness to us, even if we don't see him face to face shining as bright as the sun. So here is my encouragement to you with a little bit of a challenge. Are you willing to see Jesus for who he is through your problems, through your letdowns, through your disappointments, through whatever you go through, whatever suffering this world presents to you? Are you willing to let him shine his light in your heart and take him at his word? And do not let the darkness, the pain, the evil of this world snuff out the light of his hope and his love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today. I just want to take a few moments, Father, and thank you in this house that you sent your son to show us your character, to show us who you are, to meet with us. We thank you, Father, that you sent the Son. Jesus, we thank you that you came willingly of yourself. The Bible says you were not forced to lay down your life, but you willingly chose to lay down your life. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you initiated what the Father and Son planned and have now come with the finished work of Jesus to convict our hearts and make the Father and Son come alive to us today that we can hear their voice. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, we worship you today. Father, help us to see Jesus for who he is by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're going through situations, I'm not going to call you to the front or anything like that. We've already done that today. What I want to do is just where you're at in a place of meditation and prayer to seek God for your life that you might see Jesus in the midst of your storm, see Jesus in the midst of your suffering, see Jesus in the midst of your pain, and trust him regardless of how you feel, how much you go through, or what people say and do against you. Look to see Jesus in a way you've never seen him before. Right now, right now, would all of us here look to see Jesus? And if you're not going through a trial or a test, as the old preachers used to say, wait, because one is coming. <laughs> Just wait, because one is coming, and see God in the time of blessing. But I know many of you here are going through hardships. You're waiting on something to happen, and you just wish Genie Jesus would come and speed up. But before you ask him for one more thing from his hand, would you seek his face? Before you ask to be blessed by him and to have his blessings, would you have his heart? And before today, you ask him to bless your house, to bless your family, would you make God your home today and let his heart be his home? And would you become a part of the family of God? Listen to Jesus as the Father said. Rachel, would you just sing something softly in the background as we do that right now? Come on, marriages need to see Jesus today in a new way. 
Children need to see Jesus today in a new way. Let his glory come upon you. Let us all see Jesus today. It's not just about using imagination and and thinking about a guy glowing today. That's not the point. When I say see Jesus, I mean see Jesus' word come alive in your life. To see his power be shown. You'll see Jesus when your marriage is healed. You'll see Jesus when your children listen and obey. You'll see Jesus when on the job you keep your testimony no matter how they treat you. You have to see him as the one that's moving even when you don't see how he's moving. You have to believe that he's answering prayer even though you don't see that answer come about yet. These disciples had to believe Jesus was the Son of God even though he was about ready to be spit on, had a crown of throne pushed on his head, stripped naked and beaten, laid upon a cross. They had to believe that he's still the Jesus that glows and shines brighter than the sun. Come on, how do you see Jesus? Don't let temporary suffering take away his eternal glory for your life. The Bible says whoever's in Christ today is a new creation. You may not see the new you, but you're new if you believe in Jesus today. Don't turn your back on God because of momentary suffering. A few more moments. Thank you, God. We want to see you, God. We want to see you in new ways, oh God. Show me, God, to trust you to love you I will not be shaken if we can just get a glimpse of you today in your glory and your love and your power we'll trust you in times where it's hard God now for those of you who have said I surrender ask God for an encounter now now that you've said I'm not looking for you to glow to prove something to me I trust you Ask him now to give you an encounter. We can have spiritual encounters, dreams, visions. We can have, you know, his power touch our hearts in so so many ways, you know, emotional, crying, shouting, laughing, whatever. Ask him now for an encounter. But remember, we're asking for the encounter, not to prove himself. We're not asking him to come out the bottle and do a dance to prove himself. We're asking for the encounter because we love him. And no matter what happens, we trust him. A few moments right now, we trust you, Jesus. Think about Paul and Silas. There was a time they were worshiping God even after they were beaten and put in jail. And an angel came, opened up the jail cells. They got out free. Great night, great miracle. But there was also another time Paul was in prison, never got out and got beheaded. Was he still singing? Come on. That's where you got to want an encounter for God's sake. Not just to get another thing, another upgrade, another breakthrough, another deliverance. That's great. But your relationship with God can't be based on breakthroughs, based on deliverances, based on miracles. Whether I get delivered from this jail cell or not, whether I get healed from this cancer or not, whether my life changes today in all of these ways or not, whether my boss changes or not, I am worshiping Jesus. My heart is his home, and I want to encounter him. I want to love him.
with no strings attached. No strings attached. I just want to encounter him today. A few moments. Come on, don't hear me today. You can't ask for a miracle. We're getting to that last. But right now we're setting our hearts right and we're asking for encounters based on who he is. A few more moments. Just based on who you are, Jesus. I want to hang out with you. Not just because you're my healer, not just because you're my provider, not just because you're my peace in the storm. I want you because of who you are, because of what you are in your essence, not just what you do. My wife's a cook, but she's more than a cook. My wife's a mom, but she's more than a mom. Come on, somebody. You've got to stop thinking about what you get out of this. Because when we get to the point of asking, those are those who receive, the ones who understand who he is, and they're not putting him on trial. Now, lastly, those of you who are here like me, and you do want to see miracles, come on. You want to see provision in your home or for your your job and your finances. You need a healing in your body. Why don't you ask him right now, without any strings attached, just from the heart of a true lover of God. We ask you, Lord. And the Bible said we can now ask in Jesus' name. We ask in Jesus' name for healing. We ask in Jesus' name for miracles in our family. We ask in Jesus' name for prosperity. No strings attached. We're not going to get upset if we don't see it in, in a microwave minute. But we ask in faith because you actually told us to ask. You told us you receive joy when your children ask for things from you with the right heart. And that you love to bless us. You love to pour out your spirit on us. You gave us the example that if a father knows how to give a child bread, and not a stone when they're hungry. How much more so does our Heavenly Father in your name know how to answer our prayers? And so we come with that heart. A few moments right now, call out to Him. We need you, Jesus. We need you to answer prayer today. We need you, God. But more than our needs, we want you. We want you, Jesus. You don't always have to make wine at the party. We still want you at the party, but it's cool when you do. We still want to hang out with you, listen to you teach, even if you don't make the, the loaves and the bread. But if you do, we'll eat it and enjoy it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We just want to be with Jesus. We want to see him in ways that we've never seen him before. We want to honor him and listen to him like the Father said. And we believe when we do, we will never, never be the same again. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Would you stand up with me today? I'm going to save the rest for next week. How many were blessed by today's message? Amen. Did you receive something? I know I did. Thank you, Lord. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Let's close out like this, just like how we began in prayer seeking the Lord. If you now today want to partner with someone to pray with you, come up to the prayer workers. If you want to worship, we're going to end with worship. But I hope that today's message, as much as I tried 
to make it theological, I hope that you got the heart of it. Jesus comes to meet with us because he loves us. And now as we go through the rest of the book of Matthew, just remember, that's who Jesus is, man. That's who Jesus is. Man, they're letting, uh, Jesus is letting them do that? Yeah, because he's coming to die for them. That's who my Jesus is. Jesus loves us enough to suffer and die for us, to die for us in the past tense, and he loves us enough to suffer with us now in our times of hardship. Don't ever forget that. And as the old saying goes, sometimes the light is the brightest when the world around you is the darkest. There are some situations in valleys that I have walked through that I wish I never would have been there. I just wish I never would have gone through it. It was just so hard. It, it, it felt so terrible. But I want to tell you something. In those deep, dark valleys, I saw Jesus shine brighter than the sun. Are you listening to me today? I never would have wanted to go through that situation. If you would have said to me right at the beginning, Joe, do you want to go through this? I'd be like, nope, don't want to go through it. I would have wanted to do something else. But now that I have gone through it and the experience I have of knowing Jesus, I wouldn't trade for anything. You see, the trial is temporary, but the revelation of Jesus is forever. I now see Jesus in a way that I have never seen him before. And I, if I had time, I could go through here and just point to some of you. Starting with somebody like Marcus, if, if you would have looked at your life from the point of being married, coming out of Bible college, looking towards the ministry, and someone says to you, do you want to go through divorce? Do you want to go through depression? Do you want to go through uh, you know, living lasciviously, trying to please yourself in those ways? Do you want to go through that? You would say, no, 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 I don't want to go through any of that. But in the midst of those trials, did you not see Jesus in ways you have never seen him before? Now the revelation of how you see Jesus is greater than what you knew him as at the beginning. And so that no one thinks I'm trying to say, well, let's just all see how great Jesus is. Don't get, don't get it twisted here. I'm saying we're not looking for the suffering. We're not bringing on the pain and the issues. What we are simply saying is if I go through these issues, I'm sticking with Jesus because I want to see him in ways I've never seen him before. How many of you want to go hard for God today? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Let's close out in prayer. Father, we thank you today for this service. We ask that you bless those who have to go. Encourage those who stay and receive prayer and worship. And may we see you in ways we've never seen you before. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus.